Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel by John, chapter 5. And I don't know about you, but in our, our full lives we have today, when someone sends me something on the internet, you know, all these people that are always sending, oh, you've got to see this clip, you click it and you give it about five seconds, you know, I mean, to see if it's worthy, you're looking down there to see how long it's going to last, because it's, it's, we have so much to do that we quickly move on to something else. And so, basically this morning, for those of you that just listen for five seconds, you know, and then you're on to other stuff, we're looking at Jesus Christ himself as the ultimate authority on salvation. Nobody can describe and, and demonstrate salvation coming to an individual better than Jesus Christ. If you think about it, no book, no video, no any presentation or learned, you know, pattern compares to watching the Lord himself, the author, the finisher, the savior, present the gospel. And, and that's what the gospels are all about. That's why they're called the gospels. Because they are Jesus himself presenting the gospel. But when you combine that, so that's the first four books of the Bible are of the New Testament. But one of them is even different. Because though there were 12 disciples, 12 apostles, though there were 12 that spent time with Jesus, out of those, three of them got to be the inner circle. And they got to be at spots nobody else went to. They were in the garden close to Jesus watching him. And, and they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they were the ones that, that were able to experience what nobody else were close enough to see. But within the three, there's one. And that one, everybody called him the same thing. They called him the one Jesus loved. And that one was the closest to Christ. He's the one that, that when they would recline, as Oriental meals did, on these couches and would reach in to the bowl in the center, and as they would be there, it was John who was close enough to lean back and whisper to Christ. He got to be close to Jesus. And so his five writings are unbelievable because not only are they inspired, but they're the eyewitness account of the one that was closest to Jesus. So of all the gospel presentations, some of the most compelling are John's. And, and as he weaves together the gospel, then the three epistles, and then culminates the Bible with the book of the Revelation, we find an amazing connection between the gospel according to Jesus and the gospel by John, the warnings about the gospel in the three epistles, and who believed the gospel and got there in the book of Revelation. So what we're going to look at this morning is the four gospels, and the fact that the four gospels are for Christ's church, but one of them is all we're going to really examine this morning. But think about this. The four gospels and their powerful presentations of Christ presenting the gospel were written for the church. You say, why are you, you know, why are you repeating that so much? Because there's a whole segment of Christendom that feels the Gospels are suspect. There are many that think that they're part of the Old Testament, the Gospels. Even though the Gospels were written for the church, they were written by the apostles of the church, they were written to the church. They were the underlying presentation of explaining what was happening to so many people, sweeping the Roman Empire with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The four Gospels were each written after the birth of Christ's church in Acts 2. The four Gospels were written for those who were being saved 
and trained in Christ's church to show them their heritage. The four Gospels were written during the very era where Paul and the other apostles were taking the good news into all the world to every creature. And as that church was being birthed across the world, the Gospels were presented as their foundational understanding of salvation. The four Gospels should be the richest treasure trove to us in Christ's church. For us, as we mine out the very words of Christ, I mean, imagine Jesus presented the gospel to every conceivable recipient of the gospel, from, from people that were totally pagan and, and demonized to people that were totally self-righteous and thought that God was getting a deal to get them because they were so religious. And to everybody in between, no matter how deeply ensnared in sin, no matter how deeply stained by sin, Jesus presented the gospel publicly, privately, every time powerfully presenting. The gospels are the voice to us, to the church of God the Son, who John also calls in his epistle the Savior of the world. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And we get to hear his voice. So as we open together to John chapter 5, and we're going to read just from verse 24 through 29. I want you to think about what we're hearing. John is capturing the content of the gospel as Jesus Christ presents it, and that same gospel swept the Roman Empire. And John captures a snapshot. When the Holy Spirit of God moved on John the Apostle to write, God was writing down the gospel according to Jesus. Never forget that. There's no incongruity. There's no dissonance between the gospel Jesus presented and the gospel that the apostles continued to present and explain more fully in the epistles. So basically, Christ's word is the only pathway to eternal life. That's why we're doing this study. Because if Jesus had a different pathway than the apostles... If Jesus had a different pathway than the Old Testament pathway, then we have many roads to God. But Jesus said, no, there's only one. And it's a supernatural road where I come down and supernaturally change you and make you able to be a part of my family. That supernatural gospel is the only pathway of eternal life. Well, John chapter 5, verse 24, let's all stand. And you follow along in your Bibles, and I'm only going to read to verse 29. And, and it's phenomenal to think Jesus said these things and to actually hear him say it. Uh, John chapter 5 and verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself, and has given to him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man." Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Let's bow. 
Father in heaven, I thank you that because your spirit inspired John, we have the very words that you, Lord Jesus, spoke. We have the very words that you, O Father, want us to have. And inspiration means that they were flawlessly recorded and that you have wonderfully preserved them to this very day so that we know that this morning we're holding, we're reading, we're hearing your words. And it's your words that give life. It's your words that implanted in our soul make us supernaturally transformed. It's your word that sets us free. It's your word alone that, that can heal the, the wounds and damage of sin in our lives. It's your word that's our only defense against the evil one and his minions. And so I pray that, that with renewed interest and with earnest desire that your spirit would stir our hearts to hear you, Lord Jesus, give the gospel. In your precious name we ask that. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, um, turn back with me to chapter 1 because I want to in this context, give you God's simple plan of salvation. As you're turning there, we're going to look at verse 12. I think about many years, in 1975, boy, that was a long time ago, uh, I was a freshman at Bob Jones University in South Carolina in Greenville, and I remember going to my dorm room, and the dorm rooms were very small back then. They had tile floors, believe it or not, five bunk beds, and I was the freshman coming in with upperclassmen, and one of the upperclassmen, the senior, in the class was called a prayer captain. He was the spiritual leader of the room. I remember meeting him, shaking his hand, and I noticed when I got in, everybody else had moved in, and I only had that much room in the closet. Uh, of course, I only had that many clothes, so it didn't matter, you know. Uh, things were simpler back in the 70s. And uh, I remember that, that he said, his name was Mark Porter. He says, I just want to talk to you for a second. He says, he says I'm an evangelist. And he says, I, my whole life is, is given to the Lord to share the gospel. And he said, and my grandfather wrote a gospel track, and I want to give you one, and he gave me one. And he says, I want you to use this. And he said, as many of them as you want, as long as we're roommates, I'll give you as many as you want. And what he gave me, and I looked down, he gave me the one billionth copy of a little track called God's Simple Plan of Salvation. And, and you know, it was the most unflashy track I'd ever seen. No color, no cartoons, no buzzwords. It was just scripture. And, and I thought, did you know that is God's simple plan of salvation? And look how simple it is, starting in, in chapter 1, verse 12. Because John captures Jesus describing 24 different scenes of the gospel being explained. Jesus, in 24 different contexts, in this gospel, tells about salvation. But what's amazing is all of them are simple, and all of them say the same thing. Verse 12, it's, it's a child in God's family by becoming supernaturally in that family. To as many as receive him, to them they give the right to become the sons of God. Did you know being a Christian means I have a whole different standing. I am related to God. I'm actually his son or daughter, and I didn't do it. God did it. See how simple it is? I'd mess it up if I did it. I'd, I'd do it the wrong way and hope for the rest of my life and keep trying to do it the right way. But when God saves someone, that instant he makes them his child 
It's supernatural. Keep reading. Look at verse 29. A true believer who understands his salvation is only by trusting in one who took their place. This, this lamb of God that takes away sin. It's the idea that a truly born-again person realizes they can't get rid of sin by themselves. Someone has to take it away. Someone has to pay the price, suffer the punishment. Verse 33, a believer is overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, I can't clean up my life. You ever meet someone they say, oh, I'm really trying to clean up my life. I can't clean up my life. Did you know God is kind of like a fisherman? When he catches a fish, then he cleans it. Have you ever cleaned a fish before you caught it? <laughs> no. You see, once a person comes, they're overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, and our whole inside is supernaturally changed by God, not by us, by God. Then we get to chapter 2. We saw last time a believer is saved only by hanging on to Christ alone. It says, then they put their faith in him. Chapter 2, verse 11. What that means is salvation is a person. And that person saves us. And that person that saved us, we cling to. It's kind of like the life jacket thrown in the storm. You look at it, that's nice. But you'll drown. But if you grasp it and do not let go. So we cling to Christ, but we find as we cling to him that he's holding us. And our salvation isn't based on how hard we hold on to him, but that he is the person, the one we cling to, is our substitute and our savior. Then we get to chapter three, and we saw the fifth scene is this whole born again, Nicodemus and, and Jesus explaining that to them. And a believer starts life over again. And then we got to chapter four, and we saw that, that salvation is drinking the water of life. Chapter four, verse 10, it, it's this living water. Why does Jesus use this drinking stuff? What is he trying to say? Well, if I up here was eating something and drinking it, it would either make you thirsty or hungry, but it would not impact you other than your perception and your, your feelings and thoughts. But it would not transform you. You had not ingested what I was eating. That's what salvation is like. Did you know that, that nowadays many people think they're Christians because they watch people eating and drinking, not because they've eaten and drank of Christ. And so Jesus said, believers have the water of life. They find him as a spring that wells up inside of them that never runs dry. You know, religion runs dry after a while. People can have these religious highs, and they can do something, and it lasts for a while, and then it's gone. Jesus said, those who come to me have a well of water that will never be exhausted, never run dry. Wow. Then Jesus said, those people began in verse 23 and 24 to worship him. And did you know the, the greatest way to prepare for this being the most fabulous worship time of, of corporate worship of the week is that the other 167 hours of the week that we're personal worshipers, that we personally worship God spiritually in truth. And that's what Jesus was getting to this woman. You don't have to go to some place and have some activity going on. You just have to be drinking the water of life It'll just flow out of you, and it's powerful. Well, now let's get to chapter 5. Look at verse 21. Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he's also the final judge. You know, a lot of people like the Jesus that's kind of the Albert Schweitzer. You probably never heard of him, some liberal that lived uh, 100 years ago and went to Africa to be Christ-like to the poor people of Africa. But he didn't believe the gospel. He didn't believe Jesus died on the cross for sin. He didn't believe he shed his blood. He didn't believe he was the Son of God, and he certainly didn't believe he rose again. But he wanted to be Christ-like. You can't be. You see, that's not the gospel because the same Jesus who is the Savior is also the judge. 
And, and look at verse 21. For as the Father raised the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus is a life giver. He is the one that gives life. That's why we come to Christ in our lostness and need and cry out to him, and he grants eternal life to us. Now, it's all of these things we're talking about all happen simultaneously, but he's the one that does it. A believer in the gospel according to Jesus is someone who hears. The son who gives life to whom he will. He, he is, is a person, and they hear his voice through his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, Jesus is talking here, he who hears my word, not just, they don't just hear the word, they believe in him who sent me. Now that's what's really interesting. You know what is the, the, the key to finding the difference between a cult and the, true, the truth of God's word? Look at who they think Jesus is. If they think he's a, merely a prophet, it's false religion. It's damnable untrue. If they think he's just a created being, it's false. If they think that, that he's an angel, if they think he's just a, a great man, you know, kind of a moral influence, and they don't believe, look what Jesus said in verse 24. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. Who sent him? His father. That means he's the son. And the son said, I and my father are one. And so it's a package. And, and those people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, you know, we're not sure about him, but boy, Jesus in the New Testament's kind of nice. No, they're, they're one. It's one and the same. And you've got to take the package to be saved. And when you do, look what it says. Uh, he who hears my word, verse 24, and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. But look at this. But is passed from death into life. You know what, there's kind of two, two pens, two boxes, two holding places, and all 6.94 billion people alive on earth are in one stall or the other. There's no third option. Either they're in death, kind of like, you know, I think about all this Auschwitz stuff. You know, every time I go over to Israel, we, you know, Yad Vashem, we go see, and we are reminded of the whole Holocaust. Did you know those people that were in the showers that were going to be gassed on the other side of the doors were the furnaces? And those people were headed to death. And you know what? Jesus said that's where all of us are. The instant of our birth, we're born on this side of the fence. Every one of us are born headed to death. But look, look what it says in verse 24. But those who believe and hear his word and believe in him are passed from death into life. We're moved into the other side. You know what John said in his epistle? He said there's only two kinds of people, those that have the son and those that don't. The death ones don't have the son. The ones that have life have the son. Only two kinds of people. And everybody in this world, as you're walking, as you're going to school, as you're going to work, as you're driving, looking at the foliage that's falling down, and going to the game or whatever you do, eating here and there, everyone you see in your mind, you ought to be going, they're either in or they're out. Either they have death or life. Either they have the sun or they don't. Doesn't matter how religious they are. Doesn't matter how outwardly pagan or religious they look. Either they have the sun and they have life or they don't. Amazing. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this. 
For the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves will hear his voice. That's why Jesus was so careful when he raised people from the dead. When, by the time we get to chapter 11, if, if we ever get there at this speed, I don't know if we will, but when you get to chapter 11, Jesus goes to a graveyard. He goes to a family tomb. He goes to where Mary and Martha had buried their brother, Lazarus. And what does Jesus say? Come forth? No. We would have had general resurrection. He said, Lazarus, you come forth. But, but look what verse 28 says. All who are in the graves will hear his voice. You know, I bet there was a shockwave through the underworld. They could hear him. See, they hear his voice. It's too late. They can't respond if, they're, if they died in the death side and in their sins. But all that are in the graves, verse 28, will hear his voice, verse 29, come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. You see, God ensures that anybody that's been transferred from this side to this side does good. Because only people who do the will of the Father in heaven go to heaven. You understand, God has at stake that all he saves, he sanctifies. Everyone he justifies is sanctified. There will be fruit in anybody going to heaven because they, look what it says, will do good and they have the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil, the resurrection of condemnation, you say, well, you mean all the people on this side never did anything wrong? Oh, they did a lot wrong, the people that have life. It's just there's no record of it anymore. That's the only gospel message. When we get to heaven, there's no record we did anything wrong. That's why the people in Matthew 7 weren't saved. There's still a record of all their sins. That's why Jesus said, I didn't know you. I, everybody I know, I erased the record of their sin. But I don't know you. Go to the place I prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, keep going to chapter 6. Here's our ninth scene. Jesus Christ is the bread of life that gives eternally secured life, starting in verse 27. Uh, in, in John chapter 6, Jesus as John's recording him, portrays a believer who believes the gospel that Jesus teaches as one who is securely drawn to Christ. So, so the, the supernatural divine tractor beam gets on them and they can't get away and pulls them. They're securely drawn to Christ, but it doesn't stop there. Those who are securely drawn partake of Christ and stay with him. See, see, one of the truths of salvation is Jesus says that all who come to me, I'll never cast out, and whoever comes to me, no one can pluck them out. No one can remove them, including themselves. See, I'm part of the no one. People, people believe that verse. They think, oh, no one can take my salvation away, but I can lose it. Aren't you one too? Aren't you human too? Jesus said no human, no no creature, no spirit being, nothing can separate what I've done. But, but let's look at these one at a time. Look at verse 27 of chapter 6. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. A believer endures. They securely come to Christ. He says the same thing in verse 35. Uh, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. Jesus said, I'm the bread, and the only way you get the bread is you come here where I am, and when you're with me, I'm feeding your soul. You see, that's the problem. A lot of believers act like unbelievers. In fact, uh, in April, we had uh, Ken Ham here. Ken Ham, the creation apologist, is an unbelievable servant of the Lord and 
great communicator. He wrote a book about five years ago, an assessment of the church. You know, everybody, we have all kinds of statistics and all these things, these alarming things, but you know, Ken put it well. You know what he said? The title of the book is Already Gone, and his premise is this. That, that the children of, of believers today are growing up in homes where they do not see parents drawn to the Word. They see their parents drawn to everything but the Word. They see their parents just, just totally living on their own, and they go to church. And they, they're totally different in church, and the kids notice that, and they come to church, and they go through this church charade, and then they go back to the real world, and the kids go, this is the charade. And so they are more into what they consider the real world, the electronic and cartoon and game and movie and and social world, which is very real to them and to their parents, by the way, and God is not. And so what happens is as soon as the kids can decide, they check out and they're, as Ken Ham said, already gone. Why are they gone? Because they don't see reality. They don't see what I'm talking about here. This is real salvation. Jesus said, the majority of people, the wide road during the church age is going to hell. The narrow, you ought to reread what he said. In in the book of Matthew, he says, the way of salvation is narrow and there are few people on it. The broad road of religion most people are on. And what it is is they're just associated with it. They know all about it, but they've never had all these things happen. Keep going in in verse 35 uh, to verse 37 because I love this. Jesus merges Calvinism and one of the tenets of Arminianism in, in one verse. It's wonderful. He says this, verse 37, all that the Father gives me. Do you know what that is? That's called election. You ever heard of election? The Father giving, the Father giving to Jesus Christ, electing and giving to him. That's the Father giving me. That's election. All that the Father gives me, that's election, will come to me. You know what that is? Free will of choice. From our perspective, on this side of heaven, I heard the gospel, and I believed and responded and chose Jesus Christ. I freely chose him. That's how the Bible always presents it from our side. You know what gets confusing? People say, no, you didn't really choose. You The Bible says it. The Bible says, if you believe, you'll be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord, you are saved the instant that you call on the name of the Lord. Now, as God's accounting system works, which we are not in eternity yet, we'll see we were chosen to him for the foundation of the world. But that's not how we present the gospel. We present the gospel the way Jesus did. He looked at him, he says, you want to be saved? Believe on me right now. In this instant, I'll save you. He didn't say, oh, you're saved in eternity past. The person will go, what? I, I don't even, I'm 12 years old. I don't know what you mean. He, Jesus shared the gospel very simply. And he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop with the election and free will. Look what he says. Uh, this is the will of the Father who sent me that all he has given me should I lose nothing in verse 39. Wow. You know what that is? That's eternal security. Jesus, who talks about election, talks about free will, and talks about eternal security, and he puts them all together, and he doesn't explain it. He says, that's what I do. You know, it's kind of like that's when, when we talk about salvation, that's what God does. You know, if you have a countertop man that you invite in to do your countertops, you don't have him do the plumbing. He does counters. When you want salvation, God does salvation. 
See, that's how he does it. He doesn't even explain it. He just tells us that's what he does. Keep going to verse 40. Because it says, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him. You talk about a simple gospel message. Do you know when Jesus presented the gospel, he presented it so simply. Do you know one time to the most religious man in Israel, uh, whose name was Nicodemus, you know how he presented the gospel? He said, like Moses lifted up a pole and wrapped a brass serpent around it, and everybody who had been bitten by the snake, now do you know how big the camp of Israel was? Three million people in tents? The minimum campground was nine miles by nine miles. It was an 81 square mile footprint to have three million people camping. And here at the center was a pole, as high as a pole from a tree they could get, stuck up. And you would go find everybody you knew bitten by the snake, and you'd while they were foaming at the mouth and paralyzed by the venom, you'd turn them and say, Moses put a pole up over there. It's about four miles from here. But he said, if you look in that direction, you'll get healed from the snake bite. And that person convulsing on the ground in the deserts, if they would look at the pole, they were instantly saved from their snake bite. That's exactly what, look what Jesus said. Verse 40, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him. We go all over and we talk to people who are convulsing in their sin. We say, there's someone who died on a cross for you. And it's God in human flesh. And he took your place and he knows you before the foundation of the world. But he died in your place and knows every sin you've ever committed. And he paid for them. If you'll see him as that substitute, if you'll believe in him. You talk about simple. There's no 12 steps. Believe in him. He's your only hope. Wow, he may have everlasting life, verse 40 says. And I'll raise him up in the last day. Look at verse 44, it gets even better. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you know what? The early church believed this. The early church did not try and draw people into the church that were lost. The, the lost people weren't supposed to come to church. Did you know the goal we have is not to have you bring every unsaved person you want in here because they think we're crazy. I mean, what I'm saying right now, most unsaved people, they go, what is he talking about? Snakes and foaming and Jesus and, whoa. They don't understand. Did you know Paul said if an unbeliever came into church, they'd think we're all crazy. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live this life and be so encouraged as we gather that we go out, and, and look what it says in verse 44, we go out looking for people whom the Father is drawing to himself. That's why evangelism is not flash and powerful humanly speaking it's simple and it's very weak and we get to witness the greatest miracle that's why if you want to really be assured of your salvation go out and lead people to christ because you see miracles happen before your eyes you see people turned from blindness to sight from darkness to light from being totally ensnared by satan to the power of god but how did that happen verse 44 the Father has to draw them. That's why prayer is so important. We have a lot of people on the front line. We have our evangelist missionaries. We have our local evangelists. We're all supposed to be going into all the world, especially our little world around us. And we're supposed to be sharing the gospel. And when the Lord draws them, they respond. It's the most beautiful sight. Look at verse 47. Most assuredly, I say unto you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. You talk about a simple message, believe in me, you have everlasting life. You can't get simpler than that. And that's how Jesus shared it. Verse 51. 
Jesus starts here down through verse 56 saying that you have to partake of Jesus. You have to drink Jesus. You have to stay in Jesus. And you say, wait, is this different than believing? No. Salvation, God does. And if God saves someone, they partake of Jesus, they see Jesus, and they stay in Jesus. If God saves them. What, what does all that mean? Well, well, look what he says, verse 51. I am the living bread which come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, what is the bread? What are we talking about? Are we talking about going to the mass and having put a little round wafer on your tongue? Is that what we're talking about? No. The word is the word of God. The bread is the word of God. The word is the bread is Jesus. Jesus says, thy words were found and I did eat them. And they were the joy and rejoicing in my heart through his prophet Jeremiah. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, what? Word of God. He equates bread with word of God. And he said, I am the living bread of God come down from heaven. Jesus is the word. Did you know this Bible is different than anything else because this is the absolute perfect representation of Jesus Christ. You understand, he is the word of God. This book records his words, his mind, his will. His plan of salvation. Keep reading to verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. So if the eating uh, Jesus' flesh is eating his word, what's the drinking his blood? In whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins through his blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses me from all unrighteousness. It talks about the, the life of Jesus poured out on the cross. His blood, which is synonymous with his life being poured out, takes care of my sin. It's his justifying death. I drink of that. That means that I, I actually don't just watch it. I participate. That's what salvation is. And finally, verse 56, he who eats my flesh... That allows the word in. Drinks my blood, that is, allows themselves to be washed and cleansed and transformed by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, abides in me and I in him. You know what Jesus said? It's divine. You can't do that. You can't, you can't eat me, you can't drink me, and you can't abide in me on your own. It's only something God does for us to partake of Christ. Look at verse 63. Here's a, another one. Uh, salvation is of the Lord. I love verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. You know what? We can, there's a lot of people that are trying to do CPR on people. They're, they're trying to save them. It doesn't work. It's the Spirit that gives life. We present the gospel message, and you don't have to, the Spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Look at verse 65, chapter 6, verse 65. And he said, therefore I say unto you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Boy, the people really understood what he said. Look at verse 66. And from that time on, many quit following Christ. They heard him. He said, you guys are just in it for the free food. No. He said, I want you to, to actually partake of me. I want you to let me change you on the inside. I want you to be totally partaking of me. They, oh, we don't want that. We want free food and healing and no commitments. Keep going to chapter 7, verse 17. Here's the 11th one. Salvation produces in us. True salvation produces in us submission to the will of God. Verse 17. 
If anyone wills to do his will, he'll know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether I speak on my own authority. A believer in the gospel according to Jesus is someone who chooses to do God's will. You say, how do you know that? Because Jesus said to those in Matthew 7 who are going to judgment and to eternal destruction, he says unto you, you never did the will of my Father in heaven. What does that mean? It means a believer at the instant of salvation is changed on the inside to wanting to submit to the will of God. More than anything else, I want to not build my life on the word of God. I want to build my life under it. I want to submit to whatever it is that is the limitation on my life that he has. I want to submit. We live in a very unsubmissive world. I mean, people don't want to be told anything, what to do. I mean, that's, uh, we, our flesh rebels, but the Spirit makes us submissive, and we want to do his will. Look at verse 37. It doesn't end there. Salvation produces in us a life overflowing with God's Spirit. And this is the, the last one that we can look at this morning, but I, I always think about what it means to have God move inside. You can't take a living infinite, eternal God who said, when I come in, I'm going to be what it says in verse 37, on that last day, the great day of the feast, John 7, 37, Jesus stood and cried out and said, if you thirst, come to me and drink. So get saved. Verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know what Jesus said? If I move inside, you're going to burst out with rivers of life-giving water from your life. You're going to not only have enough to totally satisfy your life, it's going to just flow out of you. Always reminds me of, you know, that you can't hide God. Uh, reminds me of something I, when I was young and single and foolish and everything. I, I, I used to live in California, and, and I used to attend Grace Community Church, and John MacArthur would speak, and I had figured it out that if I left, just as John said, you know, let's bow our heads, and jumped in my car and parked in the right place, I could hit the five and hit the Pomona, and I could get to Fullerton in time for second service. And so I would listen to John MacArthur first service and drive madly across Southern California and park right next to the door and run in and hear Chuck Swindoll in second service. It was the, oh, you talk about a great morning in the Lord, you know, all that doctrine and those incredible moving stories, you know, in all in one service. And so to show you how long ago this was and how old I am, Chuck was talking about hospital visitation. He used to go on hospital visitation. He probably still does, but I don't know. But back then he did. And, but to show how long ago it was, he said he went to visit, and in the hallway of the hospital, the person he was going to visit had a visitor from the church, and they were smoking in the hall. So that had to be a long time ago. You know, they don't even let cigarettes in the parking lot anymore. But this guy was standing there, and when he saw Chuck, he went, <gasps> and he stuck it in his pocket. And he's standing there like this and, and talking, and Chuck knew what he'd done. And so he just talked to him and said, how are you doing? And how's your family? And is your mom in Abilene still good? You know? And he said he kept talking to him until smoke started coming out his collar. And he said it was just a column of smoke coming up his neck, over his head. And he finally said, hey, you got other things to do. I'm going to go in here and visit this person. You and I thought, you have something powerfully, burningly, at work, and you put it, hide it. it. You can't hide it for very long. You can't hide God for very long. People can act like they used to act for a while, but if God is inside, look what it says in verse 37, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, 
This he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, the the baptism of the Spirit that we get at the instant of salvation is that all of God comes to live inside of us. God doesn't give his Spirit by measure. He doesn't give, oh, you get a quarter cup, oh, you get a half cup, oh, you get a third. He gives it all. And he wants to overflow into every part of our life and then out of us. See, salvation produces in us a life overflowing with God's Spirit. Now, one last thing. Turn to chapter 8, and this is going to just introduce next time. Chapter 8 is the most astounding chapter in John's Gospel. Chapter 8 records the most amazing salvation about teaching in one place that Jesus ever did. And he did this walking around up on the Temple Mount, what we call the Temple Mount platform today. And when we come back, we're going to look at Jesus describing salvation. The most complete package in the 8th chapter. But all this to say that one thing. Jesus knows more about salvation than anybody else. Jesus knows how to present the gospel better than anybody else because he is the gospel. And Jesus said, if you come to me, you will leave your life of sin. You will cling to me. You'll know I'm your only hope. You'll know that, that I'm the one that has made you have a new beginning. You're born again. And you know that you don't have a past. You've been, you've been moved from this side, the death pen, to life. And you want to submit, now that you're saved, to my will and not your own. All of those things are what Jesus says happens to those who are truly born again. Let's stand. We're going to close in prayer. And as you stand, I want to remind you of a couple things. One is that... Uh, after every service, both morning and evening, we always have pastors and elders and godly Titus II women who are always available. Now, the reason I say that is that if you need to talk to someone and pray with someone, they're here. But the good news is Jesus is actually right where you are. And if you have a need, as a believer right now, Jesus wants to meet that need more than any human being ever could. But a lot of times we need a person that will hold us accountable or that will that we'll actually see. But Jesus is present. He's the one that does the work. If you don't know salvation, only thing this person can do is point you to Jesus. And he happens to be right where you are. And he said, I'm not far from any of you. If you reach out for me and say, I believe, I want all that. I want a new heart. I want a new beginning. I want to be set free. You're my substitute. I'm going to hold on to you. I want the river. (laughs) My well is dry. I need that stuff. He'll do it. He wants to change us more than we want him to change us. And he's here this morning. So at the end, if you need to talk to someone, they'll be here. And also we have our um, visitor reception every Sunday after the second service in the Fellowship Center. I'd love to meet you if I never have. And let's bow together. Father in heaven, thank you for the gospel according to Jesus. Thank you for the wonderful words that he spoke like nobody else ever spoke. And those who believed were changed forever. And we are those who have gathered as your believers. We've gathered to magnify you, to worship you, and to renew your ownership of us. And as we sang right now, we pray 
you're all to us. And we want us to be all yours. And so we surrender and renew that and want to live that way for your glory. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray, and all of God's people said, God bless you as you go. Forward.